Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, my name is Kelly Brownell. I'm the director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University. I'd like to welcome Dr. Brian Wansink, who recorded an earlier podcast entitled Mindless Eating. This talked about the enormous body of research that he and his colleagues have created showing how people are remarkably um, subject to changes in their food environment, things like the shape of containers, et cetera. Um, so Brian has also done very interesting work with ideas, creative ideas about how this information can be used in order to change food policies and change the food environment in ways that could improve human nutrition. By way of introduction, Dr. Wansink is the John S. Dyson Endowed Chair in the Applied Economics and Management Department at Cornell University, where he also directs the Cornell Food and Brand Lab. From 2007 to 2009, he served in Washington as executive director of the U.S. Department of Agriculture's Center for Human Nutrition. I'm sorry, Center for Nutrition Policy and Promotion. So, Brian, welcome. Glad to have you here. It's nice to be here. All right. So, I really admire your science that you've done, showing how people, how the eating of human beings can be pushed around, manipulated, or just are subject to all these environmental variables. It's really extremely impressive when you put that body of research together. But I also admire the fact that you've now taken this and want to change the way the world deals with food in ways that can help people. So some of this is outlined in the the book you've written called Mindless Eating, but some of it has occurred even more recently. So I'd like to talk about that. And um, we can talk about what can occur at homes and what can occur in institutions like lunchrooms. So Give us some ideas. Tell us about how, how you thought about taking this research and, for, and harnessing it for social change. Oh, sure. We'll talk about the homes first, then we'll talk about the Smarter Lunchroom Initiative. Now, in, in the homes, it's amazing, but <clears throat> the, the typical nutritional gatekeeper believes that they don't have any influence over their child. You know, but we find that, that it's estimated that the typical nutritional gatekeeper, the person who purchases and prepares most food in the household, controls, for better or worse, about 72% of what their children eat. Now, it's for the better if it's, they have a fruit bowl on the table and not a candy dish, or it's for the better if they go to a restaurant where they can actually get a salad and not just cheese fries with ranch dressing on. Um, it's also for the better if in the school they give their child a little snack pack they can take instead of giving them two bucks and saying, buy whatever you want to. And I think realizing that a parent can't control 100% of what is done, but they can control a lot more than 0%. I think it helps parents sort of take back some of the control over what happens in their household. But there's a lot of really th- small things that can be done. We, we did a really cool study a while back, I think, that, that um, showed that we had children take a little questionnaire. These were four-year-olds take a questionnaire home with their, to their parents and asked, to what extent do you insist your child clean their plate? The next day when the kids came, we gave them a big breakfast and a big lunch. We found that the kids whose parents insisted they clean their plate the night before ended up pouring more pre-sweetened breakfast cereal, and they ended up taking about one extra dessert compared to the other kids. It's the sort of thing that at their home, they had no control over their food environment, so they, they sort of rebelled and regained control the first chance they did, which is the next day. And, you know, I know in looking at this data that the people in my lab who have kids, within two hours of analyzing that data, said, oh, my gosh, have we been doing things wrong? And we've stopped uh, forcing kids to clean their plate. 
we've also ended up finding that things as simple as a child, whether they be four years old or 14 years old, will pour to the size of the bowl they're given. So if you give them a, if all you have in your home are the huge adult-sized cereal bowls that they eat out of, they're going to be pouring a whole lot more if you had something slightly smaller. And it's a real easy change to make. The same thing with using tall, skinny juice glasses or smaller juice glasses than short, wide ones, which lead kids to also to overpour the juice or the soda pop they might otherwise um, drink. These are really easy changes that can be done at home, and we found also that uh, simply making snacks inconvenient for kids. Now, you know, they can have them. You can have the, the, <clears throat> the crackers and stuff, but if they end up being in a cupboard that the kid has to grab a stool and get on top of, um, we had, but by one estimate, um, it, it appears that kids are much less likely to do that. And again, we didn't do a controlled study on that particular study, but it, People self-report that their kids eat less frequently if they move the snacks out of arm's reach. The kids can still get it because they can climb on a chair stool, but it makes it a lot easier. You know, you you made the important point that the preference for things like vegetables can be contagious in a social system in a positive way. And there's this wonderful story that you've told about broccoli trees <laughs> and a parent. Would you mind repeating yeah. that here? It's absolutely yeah. fascinating. Well, you're, we're trying to figure out how to engineer a preference for vegetables among kids. And one way, the first step in doing this was to find out kids, small kids, four- and five-year-olds, who really love a vegetable and discovering why they love it and backing it out of there. And, and we were at one daycare center up near um, Syracuse, and about – 20 of these 23 kids in this daycare center all love broccoli. And it could be traced back. When we asked them why, it could be traced back to these two brothers that were there. When we asked the two brothers why they like broccoli, yeah, they kind of mumble and talk about things. And they talk about, you know, like little uh, uh, trees and green trees and stuff, which made no sense. And in interviewing their mother a short time later, their mother said, and we asked them, what do they mean when they talk called broccoli trees? She goes, oh, geez. She goes, you know, to try to get them to eat broccoli, I always told them it was like a little bitty dinosaur tree. And that every time they ate a piece of broccoli, they're like a long green-necked dinosaur eating this broccoli, this broccoli dinosaur tree. And to a four- or five-year-old, that is pretty neat. <laughs> Seeing yourself as a dinosaur going, Argh! And this conditioning of, of, vegetables as being something fun and interesting is something that we don't really spend much time doing as parents. We usually, vegetables are usually a battleground. We put them down and say, eat it. We don't try to make any association with it. We don't try to make them fun in any way. You know, another example you give of that is uh, spinach in 1928. (laughs) Tell us about that. Yeah, there's this survey done in 1928 that asked kids what their favorite foods were. And the number one food in 1928, as in today, was ice cream. The second favorite food in 1928 was, was spinach. And you go, man. And that's back when spinach wasn't like leafy with balsamic vinaigrette on it. No, it was that nasty stuff in a can, I think. <laughs> but the reason people liked it in 1928 was they liked Popeye. Popeye ate spinach. Oh, it's incredible to believe, isn't it? Yeah. Well, these two stories that you've told, the Popeye and the spinach and the mom being creative with the broccoli trees, and then that spreading to other kids in the daycare center are really amazing and, and show that food really can be characterized in a different way. Oh, yeah. We actually, we call that nutrition contagion. And we're actually looking at that. Usually it goes in the wrong direction. Usually it goes with somebody picking up the wrong thing and it infecting the rest of their people they're with. But <clears throat> we've done a lot of neat things in schools. 
let's show if you can, if when little groups of kids come in, like little pods of kids, and oftentimes kids don't come in randomly. They come in with their two or three friends. But if you can do something to direct the first kid in an incoming group to a healthy uh, area in whatever way, but use, the use of a rope or the use of a sign or, or, or whatever, the other ones who are with him will usually follow, too. It's so interesting. Yeah. So let's talk about your Smarter Lunchroom Initiative. This is something I find highly creative and something that's likely to make big changes. So please tell us about it. Well, one of the things we're doing is we're taking all this. And if you look in a school lunchroom, there's a lot of things that, that, that push kids in the direction of choosing what they choose. And I think the four main sources are... There's sociology, there's psychology, there's economics, and there's sort of consumer behavior that all sort of intersect to get a kid to pick up a cookie instead of an apple, or better yet, an apple instead of a cookie. And what we've done is we've started this Smarter Lunchroom Initiative, and the goal is for schools each year to make two recommended changes that we recommend that our research has shown in the lab and in the field kind of nudge kids to eat just a little bit healthier and um, over the course of even a year, make it better. Let me give you a couple examples. Uh, a while back, the New York State Department of Health said, hey, we're going to give some small grants to schools to try to increase whole fruit sales by 5%. Um, how much do we need to lower the price of fruit so that kids eat more fruit? We thought, you know, you could probably lower it to zero and they're not going to eat a whole lot more because their parents are paying for it anyway. It's kind of free to them on their little debit card. Maybe there's something else can be done. And we looked at these schools, some of these schools, and the way fruit was typically served was in a, like a, a silver, you know, stainless steel pan underneath its sneeze shield, way in back, uh, in the dark. <laughs> and we said, well, here, let's try this. Buy a cheap fruit bowl from TJ Maxx or wherever you want to, put the fruit in there and put it in a well-lit area and see what happens. And these schools did that. And... Uh, in the first few weeks after doing that, sales went up to 200%. After a, about a month or so, they trailed back down to about 100%, but they still, they're still they not selling 5% more fruit by cutting the price. They're selling 100% more fruit by buying a fruit bowl. And, and you know, we find that these small changes like that are simply putting the name, uh, calling some of the creamy corn instead of corn, increased the percentage of people who take corn by 27%. So in, uh, simply doing, making these small changes in the lunchrooms seem to be having a very nice influence in bumping people. So we have a, the, the website, uh, smarterlunchroom.org, tells more about this. And we're pushing this out across the nation with the goal um, this year of getting 2,000 schools to make <clears throat> either one or two small changes. Then the goal for next year is to get 10,000 out of the 90,000 schools to make a change. So give us some more examples. So one was the fruit being put in an attractive container in a well-lit well spot. What are some others? <laughs> well, we, we found uh, in some cases the people want to ban chocolate milk, but it really can cause a revolt. But we found that simply rearranging the chocolate milk so it's difficult to get to but still available and the increase in the percentage of people who took white milk instead of chocolate milk. Um, putting something in the front of the line, putting the healthiest thing first versus third, increased sales by about 11%, covering up the ice cream um, freezer, which most places have, just with contact paper. Still at the people who really want ice cream to get it, but it reduced uh, the, the overall percentage because kids didn't see it, they didn't ask for it. Um, we found that um, 
using a smaller bowl for the schools that serve breakfast, going from an 18-ounce to a 14-ounce bowl, decrease how much people took by about a third, and asking kids if they want salad with that instead of just having the salad out there. And that's the same thing you'd find in a fast food restaurant is, is somebody would say, hey, do you want fries with that or do you want to drink with that? Here we just say, hey, do you want salad with your pizza? Increase the amount of salad kids took by. It almost doubled it. You've also found that moving the salad bar. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <clears throat> this was a this was a restaurant up in up in New York State that that <clears throat> asked, well, um, what do we need to add to a, add to our salad bar just to get kids to take more salad? You know, they were asking them what was it like. This was a school or a restaurant? It was a school. A school okay. It was a it was a middle school actually, and they wondered, you know, should should we add black olives or those little bitty corn things or what? And we saw this place. They had shown us a picture of it. And the salad bar was a movable cart that was up against one of the walls. And we said, here, just move it out six feet, turn it perpendicular to the cash registers, and let's see what happens. And in the, within the first two weeks, sales went up 200 to 300%, just, just because kids had to walk around it to get the, get the cash registers. And the fourth time you walk around it, you kind of say, hey, maybe the salad wouldn't be so bad. <laughs> Now, this is a fundamentally different approach than, say, using education. You know, I'm a big believer in nutrition education. In fact, I'm fortunate to be the incoming president for the Society for Nutrition Education. But most kids know that an apple is healthier than a cookie. Uh, And telling them four more reasons why it's healthier than they thought is probably not going to do much for most kids, or would have done anything to me, I guess. But doing something like this where they believe it's their own volition that's caused them to do something, and and that sort of leads them in a way that it, it sets up sort of the healthier default as being um, um, what they're more likely to take. Good. This work is so impressive. I mean, it's impressive because you have such a strong research basis for it, but then also you're out there in the real world just watching what kids do and then thinking of clever ways of changing the environment, both kids and adults, changing the food environment in ways that, that improve healthy behavior. And one nice thing about it is that none of these things you're talking about cost very much, whereas education can cost a lot to do enough of it to really make a difference. And, uh, you know, other public policy things can cost a lot, too. That's the beauty of this is it seems like it's highly practical to use in these community settings. We call them low-cost, no-cost changes. But, you know, it, it was interesting in, in – uh, trying to hire some people to the center <clears throat> to the center up at Cornell to work in the Smart Lunchman Initiative. Um, there's a lot of pressure to hire researchers. Well, we can find researchers anywhere, and a lot of we can enlist them for small projects. But I, I did something that was really controversial. I I hired as the person in charge of outreach. Uh, she was a food service director. She'd been a 28-year food service director. She's the incoming president for this. Um, School Nutrition Association, and people said, "What are you doing? I mean, this is this is this is a, a lunch lady you've hired, but this woman's amazing because she speaks the language. We'll we'll develop materials and say, hey, here's how we're going to tell schools about this.' And she'll say, "No, no, 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 that is wrong. We got to adjust it this way." And t- and working with a real person who's faced these real problems has been so much more valuable than hiring. You know, somebody with a Ph.D., J.D., M.D., um, when it comes to actually making changes on the ground. So, again, you've written a book called Mindless Eating that describes a good bit of this research. And you also mentioned 
a website or two along the way. Would you mind repeating those in case people want more information? Yeah, well, more tips about the children can be found at mindlesseating.org. But if you want to know more about the school lunches, it's smarterlunchroom.org and then Ben ben.cornell.edu is about the center itself. All right, good. Well, thank you so much for sharing this with us. It's a pleasure to have you here. I always love it. Thank you. All right, our guest today was Dr. Brian Wansink, internationally known expert on eating behavior and the John S. Dyson Endowed Chair in the Applied Economics and Management Department at Cornell University, where he also directs the Cornell Food and Brand Lab. Please visit our website at www.yalerudcenter.org for a variety of resources, including a free email newsletter that goes out monthly, loads of information on food and food policy, and of course, a list of the other excellent uh, podcasts that we've recorded. Thank you.